0: All right, everyone else who is going to be stuck with me today, you're going to be in Revelation chapter 3, so you can turn with me there to Revelation 3. As we continue on in our series that we've called Apocalypse Now, we are walking through the book of Revelation a few verses at a time. We're going to wrap up chapter 3 in the next couple of weeks, and then we will take a break. we got Mission Sunday coming up in two weeks. After that is Easter Sunday, and so we'll take a break, and then we'll jump right back in again. So most of you know this about me, but just in case you didn't, just in case you are getting to know me still, uh, we've been in Leamington for a little while now. Before we were pastoring in Leamington, my family and I lived up in Sudbury. There it is, Sudbury, Ontario, way up in the north. That's the Giant Nickel. It's one of the landmarks of Sudbury, as is in the background. It doesn't really do it, do it justice. That is the Inco or the Vale Superstack. It's this huge smokestack coming out of one of the mines, uh, and it looks tiny there, but it's ginormous, and they don't use it anymore, but at one point it was the largest smokestack in Canada. And so Sudbury, as that would suggest, is famous for its mining. It's a mining town. It's actually a large city. It's uh, not quite Windsor-sized, but it's up there. And so we were up in Sudbury for five years. I pastored at the Pentecostal Church up in Sudbury. And so Sudbury, from the very beginning of its, its beginning as a town many, many years ago, uh, was when they realized, hey, there's shiny rocks pointing out of the ground. And then they realized they could mine these things and that they could turn these things into other things, and so it began to boom as a mining town. So nickel is the main thing that gets mined up there. There are some other things as well, but it's well known for its nickel mining. And so if you go up there to visit, you can actually go. There's an organization called Dynamic Earth where you can actually go down into an old mine, and they've got it all kind of sunk in, and it's all safe and, and empty now, but you can actually go in and see what it's like to be underground. So bad if you're claustrophobic, wouldn't recommend it, but it's pretty cool to see. And so there are a lot of nickel miners in the town, and a lot of members of our church were nickel miners, and you can make a lot of money mining nickel. It's a very good living, um, but it's also very dangerous. You get paid well because it is a dangerous profession, and so there can be cave-ins and rock bursts, and you can be drilling and hit a pocket of poison gas, and it's just not uh, the safest job out there, and one of the things that they have to do a lot of is they do a lot of blasting, which they do as safely as they can, but they don't just drill mines. They blow it up, literally, like with explosives, and that's how they start to get going, and And so no one told us that when we moved there. And it took us a while to figure out what was going on. But you would be sitting reading a book or you'd be having dinner and then you'd hear (laughs) off in the distance and then your windows would rattle like 10 seconds later and the ground would shake a little bit. And it took a while for someone to explain to us, oh, they're blasting. That's how they're they're getting these mines going. And so, yeah, that's going to happen all the time. That's never going to stop. Um, so it's like, oh, okay, great. That's like living by an airport, right? There's <laughs> just going to be noise and shaking forever. But one of the other things with that that no one ever explained to us, it's very disconcerting when you're just, your house is shaking a little bit, but it's also prone to earthquakes, that area. And so they're never like major earthquakes where things have fallen down or, or there's been major damage, but pretty regularly there would be tremors, and there was one a somewhat significant one. I think it was close to a four on the Richter scale, and so again, that's not bad enough that like houses are caving in, but it's bad enough that the whole world shakes a little bit. And so I was at work. I was working at the church. I was in my office, and then all of a sudden, it was just like, just all of a sudden, everything is shaking a little bit. And so right away, Twitter lights up and Facebook, and everyone's going, what's happening? Earthquake, is everyone okay? Earthquake everywhere, there's an earthquake. And it was fine, but it was, it's, it's weird. Like, I don't know if you've ever been through that, uh, and that's not even a bad one, right? That's not even one where you're seeing, like, buildings fall down and tsunamis happen. That's just a, a pretty tame one. But it's very disconcerting when the building you're in is shaking. It's very disconcerting when the ground you're standing on starts to shake. It's not supposed to do that. It's supposed to be that, yeah, whatever's going on in your life, you can sure at least stand on the fact that the ground at least is solid, right? Whatever's going on in your life, you can be in your house, and your house is nice and safe. But when that happens, it is a very, like just, yeah, disconcerting is the best word. It's a very unusual feeling where you're like, okay, that's not really meant to do that. The ground's supposed to be solid. My house is supposed to be solid. And so you had these little, you'd hear these kind of little sonic booms of the blasting happening and your windows would rattle a little bit. Uh, but this was one where it's like all the glasses are shaking in your cabinets a little bit. And and it's just like, wow, that's just, that feels weird. That's not what's supposed to happen. And so we had talked a little bit last week when we jumped into the church of Sardis that there had been a tremendous earthquake that had just shaken the world in a powerful way. Uh, And so the church that we're looking at today also had been dramatically impacted by this earthquake, and the earthquake had actually shaken up their city in a very profound way. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Revelation chapter 3 to the church in Philadelphia, and we're starting in verse 7. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So, just quick recap, if you've been following along in the series, you know this all by now, but the book of Revelation originally was sent out to seven churches that were in seven different cities of what we now call Turkey. At the time, it was called Asia Minor, and so it was meant not just for seven churches alone, but it was meant to be shared probably with all the churches in the area, but there are seven specific churches that get mentioned, and each of them get a specific shout-out in this letter. So, the whole book is going to all of them, but Jesus acknowledges each of the churches on their own, and he has specific things that he wants to say to every single one of them. So every one of these churches is going through something. There is There are things that uh, Jesus is drawing attention to, and they're all real, literal churches that were in this time and in this place. And so for us, as we've been going through this, we are obviously not the church in Philadelphia. We are obviously not the church of Laodicea. We don't live in the first century. We're very, very removed from the literal uh, context of what's going on here. But every one of these letters ends with that statement that he who has ears, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And so that's what we are wanting to do. We are wanting to hear what the Spirit is saying to us through the text. And so even though we are not literally the Church of Philadelphia, there are things the Holy Spirit wants us to see. There's things that he wants us to hear through this text because all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so how is the God-breathed scripture speaking to us as we look at what was going on in this particular church? So, let's talk about Philadelphia. We know that name, Philadelphia, don't we? There's another Philadelphia much closer to home. That's where Will, uh, Will Smith is from, right? We know the song very well. And so, West Philadelphia, born and raised. And so, Philadelphia is a term that we know. It's a major city in Pennsylvania. Long before that, it was a city in Asia, uh, in modern-day Turkey. And so Philadelphia, it comes from two Greek words. One of them is delphos, which means city, and one of them is phileo, which means love. And so we kind of really just have one word for love that we use, and we use it in all circumstances. So we say, I love pizza, and we say, I love my children. We have the same word. Hopefully those loves are not at the same level. Uh, in the Greek language, they have different words for love to try to distinguish some of those differences. And so the uh, the Greek, one of the Greek words for love is eros, and it means romantic love or sensual love. It's where we get our word erotic from. Agape love shows up a lot in the New Testament, and that is divine love. That's God's love. And then there's also phileo love, and phileo love is the love that we would have for one another. It's the love that you have for brothers and sisters. It's the love that you have for your fellow man. And so this word Philadelphia comes from these two words, Delphos, which means city, and Phileo, which means love, but specifically that brotherly love. And so Philadelphia literally means the city of brotherly love. And so you've maybe heard that phrase before. That's what the city in Pennsylvania uses as its motto. Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And so as with all the cities we've been looking at, Philadelphia as a city has been through a lot, and the church in this city has been through a lot. They're facing the same pressures. There's a a very strong pressure to worship uh, these false gods and false idols that the culture was worshiping. Philadelphia was famous for its vineyards. It had really good wine and a reputation for wine. So their sort of patron god, small g god, was Dionysus, who was the god of wine, and so they would worship him with these kind of drunken festivals, and so Philadelphia was very known for that. There would have been a very real pressure to join in the Dionysus worship. Like all the cities, there was a pressure to engage in emperor worship and to not just honor the emperor and not just submit to the emperor but actually worship the emperor as a god and so philadelphia for a little while had actually gotten renamed neo-caesarea which means new caesar and it was they wanted to show Caesar how much they loved him, how devoted that they were to him. And so they renamed themselves New Caesar as a way of paying honor to him. Philadelphia also had a very large Jewish population. And as was often the case in the first century, the Jewish population was not very friendly to the Christian population. They were persecuting them badly. And so the Jewish population in all of these places, uh, the Jewish people had actually received special status in the eyes of the empire. The empire had actually said to the Jewish people, you can continue to worship your God, you can continue to offer your sacrifices. Most places didn't get that. Most religions didn't get that. They were just forced to get swallowed up in the Roman emperor worship. But the Romans had given the Jews special status that said you can still keep uh, worshiping the way you want to worship, you can still keep worshiping the Lord. And so for a while, the Christians had kind of been able to fly under that radar a little bit and kind of, they were, a lot of them were Jewish in in the beginning, and so they were able to kind of sneak in under that special status. But more and more, the Jewish people began to make very clear these Christians are not with us, we don't believe the same things, uh, we do not want them in our synagogues. They began kicking them out and shutting the door to them. And so, there's a lot of Jewish persecution going on, there is a lot of uh, religious persecution going on from the just the idols and gods and those who followed those in the culture. And then, there's this pressure to worship the emperor always. One of the reasons that Philadelphia was so great to the emperor and so eager to worship him was you remember last week we had talked about that earthquake that had hit now this was decades earlier but an earthquake had hit that had just leveled the city of sardis it had leveled the city of philadelphia and it leveled the city of laodicea which we'll get to next week it had done lots of damage to the other places as well but the emperor had gone into sardis and gone into philadelphia and said we will help you rebuild And so the emperor had put aside taxes, and and you don't have to pay any taxes for five years. They'd poured millions of dollars worth, the equivalent of millions of dollars, to rebuild the city. But in Philadelphia, like, everything had just fallen down. The temples had fallen down. uh, The structures had fallen down. The theaters had fallen down. The whole city had just been leveled. And so for Philadelphia, they actually decided, we don't actually want to live in the city anymore, because in the city, things fall down. And so there had been an exodus kind of into the hills around the city, and so people kind of moved to the outskirts of town, and so they would still be part of Philadelphia. They would work there and trade there, but they weren't living there because they just didn't feel like it was safe to live there, and so the city had, uh, in gratitude to all of Caesar's help, named themselves New Caesarea, New Caesar as a way of honoring him because he had helped them out so much in these uh, troubling times, and yet the city was still never the same. People had moved out. Uh, It didn't feel safe to be there, and so Jesus is is going to speak into some of that stuff as he writes this letter specifically to this specific church. So verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So each of these letters begins with Jesus introducing himself in some way. Uh, There is a revelation about who he is. We learn a lot about who Jesus is by reading how he introduces himself in these letters. So these are the words of him who is holy and him who is true. Jesus is fully holy, set apart, divine, sacred, different. Jesus is completely different than anything of earth, than anything that is created. He is completely other. He, that's what holy means. He is completely set apart and different, and he is true. He is always true. His words are always true. His nature is always true. We can trust him because of that. Jesus is always true. And then there's this thing about the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut. What he shuts, no one can open. And so that's worth digging into a little bit. Um, And we've said throughout Revelation that almost everything that we find here has an Old Testament connection. Almost everything that we would read about in Revelation, if you kind of draw the threads back, you will find an Old Testament connection. And so it's worth digging into the Old Testament as we understand what the Old Testament is saying. That's actually going to help us understand what Revelation is saying. And so key of David, if you're to do a Google search of that, or if you're to look it up in a concordance, it does show up elsewhere in Scripture in the book of Isaiah. Uh, And so this is happening during the time of King Hezekiah. And so this is somewhere in the neighborhood of seven eight hundred years before jesus would walk the earth but there is this prophecy that comes through isaiah isaiah 22 verse 20 and then verse 22 god says in that day i will summon my servant eliakim son of hilkiah i will place on his shoulder the key to the house of david what he opens no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open well that sounds awfully familiar So there's almost a direct quote here that John is calling upon. I will summon my servant, Isaiah says, Eliakim, son of Hilkiah. So Eliakim served in the household of King Hezekiah, and there's a prophetic word in Isaiah's time that says, I'm going to raise up Eliakim, and he will become this major figure in in the palace, in King David's palace, which is now being uh, filled by King Hezekiah. David is is long since dead. But God's going to raise up Eliakim, And he's going to give him the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. In this context, what it's saying is God's going to raise up Eliakim to to be the one to have this position of authority in the house of of David. He's going to have this authority in the palace. And so we know from history that Eliakim became something like what we would maybe call a finance minister. Um, And in the historical records, it calls him the steward. He was the steward of the house of David. He was the steward of the palace. And so there is perhaps a literal suggestion that he literally held keys and he decided who could get into the palace, who could get out of the palace, who has access, who doesn't. Um, But metaphorically, it's also just a way of saying he had authority authority he was a, a raised up person in the house he was one who had authority he was one who was trusted he was one who had access he was one who decided who got access and who didn't get access and so Eliakim was given this sort of honorary idea of you're going to have the key to the house of David what you open no one can shut and what he shuts no one can open and so there's all of this royal authority tied into this idea of holding the key because keys represent authority Right? If your house is locked, you can't get into it without a key. Someone with authority has to have a key. Not everyone has a key to the church. I have a key to the church because I have some authority here as a staff member. Jeff has a key to the church because he has some authority here as a ministry leader and as a staff member. So there's a, a representation here that a key represents authority. And so as, as this is true of Eliakim, literally, in history, Jesus then claims that for himself. Because as much as this is true of the one man back in time who was given a special spot in God's house with some authority, Jesus is saying, I have authority that's actually well beyond that. I have the key of David. I am the one who opens doors, and I am the one who locks doors. And in the direct context, he's probably talking about in terms of access to God. He's probably talking about, you know, hey guys, where the Jewish people had kind of locked you out and, and treated you badly, where you're feeling locked out and shut out of society, um, I'm the one who actually opens doors. I'm the one who actually locks the doors. I'm actually the one who's in charge of who gets into heaven and who doesn't. I am the one who has that much authority. So while it was true of one man in a literal temporal sense, Jesus is saying there is much more to this, that Jesus is the one who has much greater authority. He decides who gets into heaven. He decides who does not, and that's an important distinction. In terms of a more kind of devotional application of this, Uh, open doors and shut doors. We sometimes use the phrase, well, when God closes a door, he opens a window, right? We say things like that. And that idea can be represented in this verse here, that Jesus is the one who opens doors in our life and Jesus is the one who shuts doors in our lives. And so throughout our lives, we have to make decisions. We have to say, are we going down this path? Are we going down that path? Are we going to go with this opportunity? Are we going to go with that opportunity? And hopefully we're praying about it, and hopefully we're discerning it, and hopefully we're seeking his will and seeking his best. But ultimately, the Word of God says many are the plans of a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. We understand that ultimately it's the will of God that gets done. And so sometimes I want to go down this path, but he has just not opened that door. It's just not possible for me to to make that decision. I would like to go down that path, perhaps, but that's not a door that he is opening. Maybe he's opening a door over here. And so I have had times in my life where I have been interested in either a job or a ministry opportunity or a new ministry idea or whatever, and you pray about it and you start to explore it and you go down that road and God just shuts the door. There's times where the door just shuts. And let me tell you, I have wasted, I would say, significant time in my life trying really hard to kick open doors that he has just not opened for me. And you can waste all sorts of energy and all sorts of emotion and all sorts of effort to try and force open something that he's just locked. And if he's locked it, if he shut the door, you can't open it on your own. And even though it's frustrating that this door might be locked, it does mean that there is another door open over here. And there's been times where, like one in particular, there was a job that I really wanted. On paper, it was perfect. Like, it was everything that I was looking for in a job. It was every box we were checking off. I was every box they were checking off. Like, it looked perfect. It was in a location that we wanted. We'd been praying into all this stuff. And I really, really, really was excited that God was clearly opening this door. And then as we were discerning and walking through the interview process, all of a sudden the door just shut. And we tried to open it, but it was just shut. That opportunity was closed. And it was frustrating. It was disappointing. It was, it was heartbreaking a little bit. We were really excited about this open door. But then it turns out there was a door over here that was open. And when we finally got to that door and we walked through that door, we went, oh, that closed door was terrible. Why did I think that was so right? Because his will is always Perfect. I dated a girl before I met Sarah, and I really thought I was going to marry her. I was, I was crazy about her, and, uh, and then the door shut. The relationship ended, and for a while afterwards, I tried to open that door and tried to make that happen, and it just didn't happen, and now it's like, thank you, Jesus, for sparing me from that horrible girl, which is not true at all. But compared to my wife now, in terms of who is right for me, like, I'm glad God shut that door. She's wonderful. She's not horrible at all. I'm glad God shut that door. Because in those cases of the job or the the other girl that I cared about, I mean, I thought I knew what I wanted, but God knew what I needed. And he is always right. And so I can spend my life trying to force open doors that he has just locked, and I can get mad about it and angry about it. Or if I explore a door and the door is shut, I can just be at peace with that and say, I'm going to trust that he knows what's best always. I'm going to trust that even if this door is shut now, doesn't mean that it'll be shut forever necessarily, or it just doesn't mean that there's not something better. And part of trusting in God's shut door is the ability to say, I trust that there's another open door that's for my good, and I can actually be at peace about that. And so even in this last year, We were talking in the first service, like, we're all probably a little frustrated that the door has not been opened for life to somewhat go back to normal, right? We're still living under restrictions. We're still living in this weird kind of limbo time. We really want the door open. We want to be able to have our freedom back. We want to be able to do what we want to do. We want to live life the way we want to live life, and we're living in this time where that door has just not been opened yet. And again, we can scream ourselves hoarse at the locked door, but if Jesus wanted everything wide open right now, it would be open right? He's Lord. He is Lord over every government, over every virus, over every treatment, over every everything. He's Lord over all of it. If he wanted things back to normal by now, then they'd be back to normal. And the fact that that door has not opened yet doesn't mean he's any less God, but he has just not willed for that to be open yet. So we can invest all this anger and bitterness and frustration in the closed door, but that's not actually going to make the door open, right? And if you bang on that door hard enough, you're going to get bruised after a while. And so there's a place of peace we need to get to where we say, I don't have to like what's happening. I don't have to like that that door is shut. But if that door is shut, it's not opening until he says that it's open. And while I'm waiting for that door to open, maybe there's another open door somewhere. Maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something different that he's trying to do in my life right now. Maybe I'm missing it because I'm too busy trying to force open the door that just won't open. Jesus is the one who holds the keys. And if you don't have the keys, there's not a lot you can do. A couple years ago now, I was we've been in our house for about seven years. I've only done this one time. But our front door, you don't need to turn the key to lock it. You can just lock it in the doorknob, and then it kind of locks shut. And it was one of those moments where I locked the doorknob, I locked it behind me, and then went, ah, keys are in the house right now. I got to go pick up my kids in 10 minutes at school. And I don't have a car key. I don't have a way to get in. The back door is locked. And so what do you do in that moment? Thankfully, my wife was able to leave work and zip over and get them. But that's a helpless feeling, right? Like when you don't have a key, you don't have a lot of options. And so we have a little window by our front door. I'm like, yep, there they are. I can see the keys. They're like two feet away. But unless I want to break the glass, right? Unless I want to go around and like kick in a window, I don't have a lot of options. There is no authority. There are no options when you don't have the key. Jesus sets him up at the top of this letter as I am the key holder. I'm the one with the authority. I am the one in charge. And I open what I want to open, and I close what I want to close. And our job as followers of Jesus is to say, that's the one who died for me. That's the one who rose for me. That's the one who loves me more than I can possibly imagine. So I'm going to choose to trust that closed doors are not a bad thing if he's choosing to close them. I'm going to trust that if he closes the door, it's for my good. And if he opens the door, it's for my good. And I'm going to trust his will because I think I know what I want, and I think I'm always right, and I think I know what's good. But it says in the word of God, many are the plans of a person's heart. It's the Lord's purpose that prevails. I can't kick open a door that God has locked. I can trust him, and I can submit to him. So Jesus sets himself up as that right off the top. I open the doors, I lock the doors. Verse eight, I know your deeds, he says. And he says that in one way or another to each of the churches. uh, The heart of it is, I know you. I know what you've been doing. I can see you. I know your deeds. See, I've placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. So Jesus typically starts in these letters with encouragement. We saw last week in the letter to the church of Sardis, there was no encouragement for them. But in most of these letters, Jesus has something encouraging to say. And so he commends them that even in the the time of little strength, they are still holding on. And so Jesus says, there's an open door before you. And again, it's probably specifically in context talking about there is an open door with access to me. That even if the Jews have locked you out of the temple, that even if the uh, the emperor worshipers have locked you out of the business world, that even if you feel shut down, even if you feel shut out by the world that you're living in, I will not shut you out. I am not shutting you out. There is a door here. There is access to heaven that is open. You can come boldly before the throne of God because of what Jesus has done for you. So there is a door there that needs to open. And when you're you know, living in life and, and trials are happening and frustration is happening, it's easy to feel like we're just kind of locked down. Like, there's just not a lot of options. The, the Christians at this time are getting persecuted by the Jews. They're getting persecuted by the Dionysus worshipers. They're getting persecuted by the emperor worshipers. All of that, as we've talked about in previous weeks, ties into your economic well-being and your social well-being. Like, they must just feel like we're out of options. We're, we're backed into a corner. Like, there's just, there's nowhere for us to go. And sometimes when I'm counseling someone, uh, one of my jobs as a pastor, as a counselor, is to help people see uh, there are often options, right? We can often feel like I'm out of options, I'm stuck. And part of my job is to say, well, no, you could do this, you could do that, you could do this, you could do that. They're not all great ideas, maybe, but sometimes we just seem to shut down because we feel like, well, there's nothing I can do, I'm just stuck, And we need to be able to say, like, no, there are almost always things we can do. There's almost always a step we can take. And so to these people who are feeling locked down, they are feeling shut out, they are feeling rejected by their society, rejected by the religious people around them, rejected by the culture, because they are being rejected, because they follow Jesus, Jesus is saying, hey, you're not stuck. There's a wide open door in front of you. You have full access to the king of heaven all the time. And whatever trials you are going through, whatever struggles you are facing, you have this available to you always. There is a wide open door. You can come boldly into the presence of God. And Jesus says to them, even though you have little strength, you've held on. Right? You have not denied my name. You have kept obeying. You have such little strength. And that's maybe how we feel at times. Right? Our strength just runs out. We're human. We, we, even the youth grow tired and weary, Scripture says, right? Like even the young and the healthy and the strong can feel like they are not strong. Again, we're, this week was a year anniversary. Did you see a million news stories about that this week? It's the one-year anniversary of when COVID impacted our lives. We've been at this for a year. And goodness knows there are days where we probably all go, I'm just, I'm out of strength with this stuff. I've had enough. This is, I'm, I'm done. I'm exhausted. I'm weary. I'm weary in my body. I'm weary in my soul. I'm weary in my heart. I'm weary in my mind. I just, I have such little strength. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians talked about, or 2 Corinthians, sorry, talked about um, a thorn in his flesh. And we don't know what it is. Scripture doesn't tell us. I think that's on purpose because we would make a theology out of it if we knew exactly what it was. He uses this metaphor, I have a thorn in my flesh. There is something just kind of, just like if you ever stepped on a sliver or something, it's just kind of nagging and painful and there. And so we don't know whether it was a physical ailment. We don't know whether it was a people problem. We don't know whether it was a sin issue that he was struggling with. But he's got some problem. And he's saying, I don't have the ability to overcome this. And he's crying out to God several times saying, Lord, take this away from me. And that's such a human reaction to our troubles, right? The troubles feel bad, so let me get out of the troubles, right? My circumstances aren't fun, so I would like to get out of these circumstances. The trial is difficult, so the solution to that is end the trial, Lord. Take this from me. Lift this from me. And Jesus actually says, no, no, I'm not going to lift it from you. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Jesus says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You feel weak right now? You feel weary right now? You're out of strength right now? My grace is more than enough for you because my power shows up when you're weak. Your weakness is what shows off my power. So in response to that, Paul says, Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. So if it's my weakness, if that's where God shows up, how many testimonies have you heard in your life? At my weakest moment, right? In the middle of this trial, in the middle of this hardship, as I hit rock bottom, that's where the Lord showed up in incredible ways. That's where my salvation happened. That's where my transformation happened. That's where he showed up and was at work. And so when Jesus says, my grace is enough for my power is going to show up actually when you're weak, then Paul says, well, then I will be weak all day long if that means more of God's power showing up in my life. And it's the exact opposite of the way we think because we like strength. And we want to show off our strength. We actually hide our weakness. We don't want anyone to see our weakness. It's embarrassing to share our weakness. And so we want to keep that stuff bottled up. We don't want to show it off. Paul had the exact opposite reaction. He's like, hey, if I am actually more in God's grace when I'm weak, then I will happily be weak. I'll boast about my weakness if that's where God's power is going to show up. And I sometimes wonder why. Is it maybe the reason why we don't see more of God's power is because we don't do this. We just want to look strong and perfect and gifted and talented. And we want to show everybody how great we are all the time. And maybe if we get to that place of weakness, we would see more of God's power show up. So if you're feeling like the Philadelphia church, that you have little strength, in any trial that you're facing, I just there's just little strength. I'm barely holding on. Here's the thing. Your strength was never required. Your strength was never a thing. It was completely unnecessary for your strength to contribute to what God wants to do in your life, to how he can heal and restore and redeem. And your, your strength was just never a factor. And so for the Church of Philadelphia, it's, you know what? You guys have held on. If they brought anything to the table, it was that. They didn't quit. And even that, we'd say, would be the grace of God at work. But they just, they held on. That's what they brought. They didn't have to bring tremendous gifting, tremendous strength, tremendous power. That just wasn't required. It wasn't necessary. I saw someone posted, I forget who it was, some famous teacher. I said, isn't it nice to know that when God called you to whatever he called you to, that he already considered all your faults and weaknesses when he called you? He already knew that stuff. That's not a surprise to him. It's been unnecessary for him in any story in Scripture to have someone who was perfectly having it all together and had it all worked out. God's looking for people who are obedient and people who are faithful. And so his commendation to the Philadelphia church is you've held on. You have kept my word. You have not denied my name. Your strength is not required here. Going on to verse 9. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet, and acknowledge that I have loved you, since you've kept my command to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. So we, uh, one thing we notice here right away in this particular letter, is there's no rebuke, there's no correction. Almost every other church has gotten, here's some good things that you're doing, here's some things that I need to speak into and that you need to correct. This church does not get any of that. It's just support. It's just encouragement. It's just promises. So that's interesting here. Um, we are not. We won't dig into the synagogue of Satan, the, the Jewish people. We talked about this a few weeks ago when we talked about the church of Smyrna, because that phrase shows up there again. So you can go back and listen to that if you wanted to dig into that a little bit more. The gist of it is, uh, again, there's just this persecution coming against the church, that there are those who are uh, giving them a hard time and the synagogue is giving them a hard time and so they've been shut out of the synagogue and the difficulties are there. But the promise here is Jesus says, I'll make them come and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Fall at your feet, not in worship, but in, in repentance, that they will acknowledge that. And again, almost everything in Revelation has Old Testament connections. So here's one of them. Isaiah 60 verse 14, the promise of God to Israel is that the children of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. And so to ancient Israel, they are told, God says, I'm going to make your enemies come down and acknowledge that you belong to me. And Jesus says to the Philadelphia church, I will make them come along and acknowledge that you belong to me. And it's a reminder that we see in both Testaments. I think it gets specifically emphasized in the New Testament that God says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will deal with your enemies. I will deal with your enemies. Your job as Christ followers is to love your enemies. And it's really hard to love your enemies while also simultaneously trying to punch your enemies. And it's not that the enemies don't get dealt with. It's not that justice doesn't happen. But God just says, I will deal with your enemies for you. I will deal with them. He who is always just, who is always right, who is always perfect, he will deal with them. He will handle that. We love our enemies, as Christ has called us to love our enemies. There's another part here that says, Jesus says, "If since you have kept my command to patiently endure, Uh, And what a couple of words that is, to patiently endure. How well are you doing in your own patient endurance? It's easy to endure impatiently, where we grumble and are mad and are just trying to fast forward everything. Jesus commends this church. You have kept my command to patiently endure. And I've learned in my life when God wants to grow my patience, he just puts me in trials where I have no choice but to wait. Wait there's just nothing else you can do. You can't make it happen. You can't fast forward anything. You just got to wait till the thing is done. And so the command to the Philadelphia church, which I think is the commandment to us as well, is to patiently endure whatever it is that we're going through. To be able to to understand that God is up to something and that when he opens the door, this thing will be over. And when he closes the door, then we're just going to have to wait and we're going to have to patiently endure. But he says, because you've kept my commandment to patiently endure, I will keep you from the trial that is about to come upon the whole world. And so it's hard to. We've talked in the past in this book about uh, some believe it's primarily been fulfilled in the first century, the book of Revelation. Some believe it's being fulfilled now. Some believe it's all going to happen in the future. And there has to be at least an element of revelation that's happening in the future. That uh, this talk of there's a trial coming, it's going to affect the whole world. Uh, No need to think it's a literal hour long trial. That's probably just a little bit of poetry. The season of difficulty that the whole world is about to face. We won't get into it too much right now uh, because we're. We're gonna jump into this a bit later in the book of Revelation, but we gotta talk about the rapture just for a minute. So, the rapture is one of those doctrines where Some people feel very passionately that uh, it comes to us from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that says, When Christ comes back, the dead in Christ will rise. We who are alive will be caught up with him in the air. And there's not a lot of detail in that chapter about much beyond that. There's lots of other passages that talk about Jesus returning, Jesus coming back, Jesus coming for his bride. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 is kind of the classic rapture chapter. And in that chapter, we don't get a lot of details exactly on the when or the how. And so there are some. Some who feel very passionately that, as there is, um, you know, promises in Scripture that suggest. That there's going to come a time where we are just, Jesus returns and those of us in the church just go. This is kind of the left behind view, that we disappear and we're caught up to him. And then from there, uh, the, the tribulation, the wrath of God will come on the world, the trials that will come upon the world. And that would be a verse that we read in Revelation today that they would lean on. That the fact that Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from the trial means he's going to remove the church from the world so that they don't experience that trial. And there are others who look at it and say, well, when you put it all together, it looks like maybe uh, partway through the tribulation, uh, we call this a mid-tribulation rapture, we get caught up. And then there are others who think this is called a post-tribulation rapture, that it's just all going to happen at one time at the end. Jesus is going to return at the end of days, and we will get caught up to him at that point. And so there is scripture you can look at for each of these three viewpoints, and uh, it's one of those things where you say, well, which one is right? Because there's the pre-tribulation people say this, and the mid-tribulation people say say this, and the post-tribulation people say this, so which one is right, and you do that annoying preacher thing where you say the right answer is yes, because it's really hard to know, and because there is scripture you can point to in all of it, uh, that's not a hill for us to die on at all. That's, that's an area where we can have a little bit of wiggle room. We would want you, just in terms of our statement of faith at this particular church, we would want you to affirm that a day will come when the church will be caught up to Jesus Uh, The when and the how will leave some grace to have discussion and wrestle through that together. Um, And so the rapture comes up every couple years, even in the secular news media. Someone says, I've done the math. I figured it out. It's happening next Thursday. And then Friday hits. And they went, oh, I didn't mean this next Thursday. I meant two Thursdays from now. And then find all these ways to backflip and try to figure out how to stick the landing of the bad prophecy that you made that didn't come to pass. And so we will get into that a little later in Revelation. Um, We'll go a little bit deeper. But some would look at this verse that Jesus says, I'm going to keep you from the trial, to say that like and left behind, he will remove the church from the world so that they don't experience the trial. But that can also mean, that phrasing can also mean simply that he will sustain us during the trial. That whatever trials are coming to the world, we will be kept and protected during the trial. And, And he will, not that we get to avoid it altogether, but that he will sustain us during it. And he says there's this hour of trial that's going to come upon the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. That when trials come in our life, there is always a testing that is happening. There is always a a test that God is looking at to see how we respond and to see what is really inside of us and to see what really comes out. So when it comes to our trials in the Bible, we've often used the picture of the refiner's fire. Remember, we used to sing a song about that uh, back in the 80s and 90s. The refiner's fire. Uh, and it shows up in the prophets. And the, the picture is, is that when you're working with metal, I don't do this, but I've read books about it. When you're working with metal, you have to heat it to make it liquid so that you can form it in the shape that you want. And as you heat the metal and as it turns liquid, the impurities of the metal rise to the surface. And as the impurities rise to the surface, they can be scooped out. It actually makes the metal stronger and it makes it more pure. So it's a crucial process to having pure and strong metal. And God talks about using the refiner's fire on on his people there is something about our trials and our challenges and our difficulties that when the heat gets turned on in our lives when the pressure comes when the stress comes it has a way of forcing a lot of our junk to rise up to the surface right when we're stressed out we're not usually at our best When we're feeling overwhelmed, it doesn't always bring out our most loving side. And so the trials come, our impurities rise up, and it's actually a really good check. We can ask ourselves, well, how do I react when the stress comes? How do I react when I encounter difficulty? What shows up in me when these hard times come? Because when that happens, there's an opportunity there for us to say, well, hey, some junk rose to the surface. I can see it. I can repent of it. If I need to repent of it, I can deal with it. I can work on it. I can seek some help in dealing with it. So, even over this last year, we've all been under pressure. We've all been under stress. There's been stuff that's come up. Susan on our staff has said COVID is the great exposure. COVID itself isn't the thing that's causing all of these things, it's just the circumstance that's forcing our crud to come to the surface. And so we, we should, if we are paying attention, be able to notice, okay, what's going on in me? Where have some cracks been exposed in my marriage? Where have some things been exposed in how I spend my time? Where has there been sin that has shown up? Or pride, fear, anxiety, where is this stuff? Because for some of us in the last year, uh, you're going, oh, wow, there's a lot more fear in me than I realized. I, I actually, there's a fear of death that I've come face to face with, and that's actually right in front of me, and I didn't know that was there until COVID it hit. And so you say, "Okay, well we shouldn't be walking around fearful and anxious. So let's let's see that. Let's acknowledge that. Let's start to pray into that. Let's start to deal with that." For some people, it's maybe it's more anger. It's like, oh, wow, I'm mad at the government, I'm angry at masks, I'm angry at restrictions, and there's anger, annoyance, or bitterness, or rebellion that's come up. It's like, okay, well, I didn't know that was there until the government told me I had to wear a mask, and then it was like, whoa, what just rose up to the surface as the heat turned on in my life a little bit? And now I see it, and now I can pray into that, and now I can wrestle through that. Maybe I seek some help from someone I trust to help me sort through some of that stuff. What has shown up in the last year? Because we've said this before, it would be such a shame when this is all over to be exactly the same as you were when it all started. It would be such a shame to come out of this at the end of this and say, you know what, I am, yeah. I just, I wanted to fast forward it. I wanted to get mad at the door that was shut and I spent my whole year just getting mad at the door and nothing's really changing. And actually maybe the bigger concern is I'm actually more bitter. I'm actually more isolated. I'm actually more frustrated. My marriage is actually in worse shape. Right? Because everything we're going through is redeemable by the grace of God. Everything that we are facing, he is at work in our lives. And even if we don't see it or understand it, there is stuff going on. We can be more holy at the end of this. We can be more Christ-like at the end of this, that we would stand up at the end of this. I've said this before. A Sunday is coming, and I have no idea when, but a Sunday will come when we can all gather in one room, and we can have a full house, and we can lose the mask, and we can have a coffee, and we can have hug each other and we can sing at the top of our lungs and that's going to be a good day. COVID has a shelf life. We pray and prophesy that and we keep praying into that. Don't grow weary in praying that now. We continue to pray into that and declare that. That day will come. But when that day comes, may we be the people who say, "You know what? Over that last season, uh, I can actually see, yeah, I've become more loving. I've become more peaceful. I've become more joyful, I've become more gentle, I've become more kind, I've become more patient, I've become more self-controlled. The fruit of the Spirit has grown in my life as the the pressure of the season has caused the impurities to rise to the surface and as I've actually been willing to do the work to say, I see those and I'm dealing with those. I'm actually going to put some attention to that in my life. Jesus says there's an hour of trial coming to test the inhabitants of the earth. We're being tested right now, every single one of us. And maybe some days we're passing the test. Maybe some days we're failing the test. Failing the test doesn't have to be a problem. As I get older, people say this all the time. When I was a young man, I thought it was stupid. But it's like, no, I learn more from my failures than my successes. I learn more from the mistakes. I learn more from the dumb things that I've done. The failing of the test does not need to be a problem if we are willing to say, hey, I failed the test, and I want to pass it next time. Lord, what are you doing in me? And how are you helping me to get there by your grace? Jesus is getting to the end. Verse 11, I am coming soon, so hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The crown gets used in Revelation uh, in an eternal sense. Elsewhere in the New Testament, it talks about the crown uh, of salvation, the crown of life. Uh, so Jesus says, hold on to what you have. Don't lose what you have. And, and they again, they didn't feel like maybe they had a lot. Their strength was little. Uh, They didn't have a a lot that they were holding on to. But it's important that we hold on to whatever it is that we have. And he's probably meaning literally the gospel. Hold on to the truth. Hold on to the teaching that you got at the beginning. Hold on to that so that that eternal reward doesn't get taken away. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. He's talking about Olympic-style games, which were very popular at the time. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, the gold medal that's there, but it's just temporal. We do it in the spiritual life to get a crown that will last forever, Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. And so if we're doing anything athletic, if we're in the Olympics, if we're on a football team, if we're on a hockey team, there is a a strict regimen that has to happen, right? You don't just roll off the couch with no training and then go win the Stanley Cup. There is a lifestyle that needs to be embraced that is dedicated to that purpose. And Paul ties that in. He says that if you do that physically, that's fine, but we are doing this in our spiritual life. There is dedication required. There is self-discipline required. There is effort required. And so I have a friend who a few years ago uh, ran a marathon for the first time. He'd never done it before, and so uh, he would bike, and he would do 5Ks and stuff, but uh, he spent the summer training, and 5K becomes an 8K, becomes a 10K, becomes a 12K, and eventually got to the point, point. and so the day he actually ran the marathon, uh, he did pretty good. This is Kyle Kutstra, uh, Catherine. He did really good, and, and for someone who's not an athlete and doesn't do this all the time, it was very impressive, and so he was telling me about it afterwards. And uh, I just said, to run a marathon, that blows my mind. I just can't believe humans do that. I just, I hate running so much. I just can't believe that they, and how all the hard work and all the training and the diet and everything that you have to do to get there, it just blows me away. Just totally amazed. He got a medal for it that he, uh, that he won as he went through the process. And I said, how was it? Like crossing the finish line, wasn't it incredible? And he said, it was the worst thing of my life. He says, the whole last five miles, every step, I was like, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. Why am I doing this? And I said, well, sure, I, I mean, you're at the point of exhaustion, but it must have felt amazing to cross the finish. He's like, no, I hated every minute of it. It was a waste of time, and I wish I hadn't done it. And I went, well, some people you just can't encourage. I give up. That's, that's I tried. But to do that, like, he, you don't just go from a 5K to a marathon. Like, he'd invested the time. He'd actually said, this is important to me. I want to try this. I want to work at it. And the spiritual life takes some discipline. It takes some effort that we don't just say, you know what? I'll show up on Sundays and then nothing for the rest of the week, right? I'll just pop in. I'll sit there. I'll leave. I won't engage in any other way. I won't connect with community and a life group. I won't serve in any way. Like, it just doesn't work that way. So there's a discipline required to this. And, and if you have to work hard to run after a crown that's not going to last, that you have to make some effort. Paul says, so I'm going to work hard so that I don't get disqualified, so that I don't lose my crown. I'm going to actually discipline myself to this purpose. So as Jesus wraps up, verse 12, the one who's victorious, there's always a promise at the end of every letter. There's a promise of reward. The one who's victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And so there is always a promise. And what I love about each of these letters is Jesus speaks to these people exactly where they're at. So you remember that earthquake that we were talking about? Philadelphia had been leveled. Everything had fallen down. Everyone had fled the city. And so to people, there would be people alive who still remembered that, and even if you weren't alive when it happened, you sure knew the stories, and you had seen the ruins, and you had seen the effect of this devastating earthquake. To people whose lives had been shaken and turned upside down, and where all the buildings and pillars and temples had fallen down, Jesus says to those people, I'm going to make you into a pillar, into a temple, into a city that you will never have to leave. There's an eternal thing that I am doing in you. Whereas in the natural, you had to flee the city because it wasn't safe. I'm putting you in a place where you will be safe forever. I will build you up into a temple. I will put you into this body that is unshakable, that that will never come down. You will never need to worry about that. You will never need to leave it. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, As you come to him, Jesus, the living stone, Rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is the the capstone, the foundation, the cornerstone. We are all like stones in this building called the Church, capital C, the global church that we are all a part of that goes back 2,000 years and will continue on until he returns. We are all being built into this solid thing that cannot ultimately be shaken. And so to the church in Philadelphia, I will make you a pillar. You will be built into this temple. The ground will never shake the church down. There's this great hope built into the promise. God is building you up together. And it just reminds us how much we need each other. A stone on its own can't do a whole lot. A stone built together with other other stones can form something that is solid and good and strong when God is the one doing the building. And then there's this promise about names. If you are victorious, then I will put the name of God on you and the name of the city of God on you. And Jesus says, my new name will go upon you. And so you remember the city of Philadelphia had changed its name at one point. Caesar had been so helpful in rebuilding the city that they named themselves New Caesar, neo Caesarea, for a while. And so Jesus says to this city that had changed its name, "Uh, I'm going to put my city's name on you. You're not changing your name anymore. You belong to me. I'll put the name of God on you. I'll put the name of Jerusalem, the holy city on you. And Jesus says, I'll put my new name on you. If you remember when you were kids or if you have kids, kids, you, you want to write your name on everything because that means that's mine, right? Right? that toy is mine. When my kids went to school, we had to put labels on everything. Every thermos, every sandwich container, every box and thing, every bit of clothing and mittens and shoes. Names, labels everywhere because it means that's Kaylee, so that the kids don't mix them all up. And sometimes our kids would just trade things for no reason. Just, I like your sandwich box. Let's just trade that. And so you put names on everything because that means that that belongs to that person. When God puts his name on us and the name of his city on us and Jesus' new name on us, that's his way of saying you belong to me. You're mine and I am yours. And there's this little quirky thing in there. Jesus says, oh, and you're also going to get the name, the new name, my new name. And so we don't know what that is. But it just suggests that even though we believe that the revelation of God is contained in his word, that when it comes to eternity, we are going to continue to learn new things about our God when we're face to face with him. We will be learning about him forever. There is endless revelation to come about who our God is. Come on up, worship team. We'll wrap it up here. We've called 2021 a year of thriving, and we just wanted to pick a theme for the year. And what we wanted to focus on was... 2020, so much of that was just kind of surviving. And going into 2021, we just said, yeah, we don't know how long we're going to be in restrictions. We don't know what's going to happen. We still don't know. There may be more lockdowns to come. There may be more things we have to go through. We just don't know. But we decided we didn't want to be people who were just fast-forwarding and trying to say, let's get this over with as quickly as possible. And when that happens, we'll be happy. We wanted to be people who said, let's figure out how to be happy now. Let's figure out how to find peace now. Let's figure out how to find joy now. How do we thrive no matter what we're facing? No matter what the circumstances are, how can we thrive there? So in light of the letter to Philadelphia, what can we be thinking about? First of all, we're going to thrive when we're going through God's open doors and not getting mad at the closed doors. We will never thrive while we're trying to kick open a door that he is just not opening. We will never thrive while we're getting angry at a shut door. It just it won't happen. We will thrive when we make our peace that he is God. He opens the doors and shuts the doors that he sees fit. If he's shutting a door in our life, we don't have to like it. And we might need to grieve it even. But that doesn't mean that we don't trust that he has something else. There's another open door that he has for us. We will thrive when we hold on to what we have, when we recognize that we don't need strength. It's not our strength that gets anything done. It's always been his grace. It's always been his power. We can't do it on our own, actually. We need him desperately and his all-sufficient grace. We're going to thrive when we persevere through the testing, when we hold on. And when we say, hey, rather than focus on how much I hate the test that's happening, rather than focus so much on how I don't like the circumstances that are going on, rather saying, God, where are you working right now? Where are you working in me? What are you showing me? Give me the eyes to see. Give me the ears to hear. Give me the understanding to see what you are up to so that I can actually pass this test and that this test isn't going to be a waste of time or it's not going to be something that makes me more bitter, but it's going to be something that actually makes me more like you, that brings more fruit out in my life, that actually shapes me to become more like Jesus. We're going to spend a bit more time in worship and then I'll close in prayer. So would you stand with me, please? Let's give him the worship he deserves this morning as we honor him.